actually in addition to looking at the entire ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, we looked at Paul's definition of love and the characteristics, the fruits that Paul attributed to those who call themselves Christians in the light of the spiritual gifts that God offers to each of us. Paul told the early Christians who read his letters that love was the single most important thing that Christians were called to witness to in their daily lives. No matter what else we might do with the gifts that God has given to each of us, if we don't love one another, then it's all in vain. It's all a sham. It's all a lie. Jesus said if you don't love your neighbor, then you can't love God. That's a pretty strong statement. And I suspect that there are some of you here this morning that would certainly claim to love God, but would readily admit that there's several neighbors that you don't really care much for. <laughs> what would Paul say about that? What would Jesus say about that? That's a simple enough statement, but how many of you have thought about that during the past week in your dealings with one another? I've been preaching about God's love and forgiveness for the past several weeks, and I'm hoping that it's beginning to soak in. We're called to love others in the same way that God loves us. We're called to forgive others in the same way that God forgives us. Last week we also heard the story of the Transfiguration, the lesson that's assigned each year on the last Sunday of the Epiphany. No matter which cycle of readings we may be in, that lesson is always read on that Sunday. The same is true about the Sunday before the beginning of Advent. That's Christ the King Sunday on the church calendar. And we always hear the same lesson read on that day. And the same is true about the first Sunday in Lent. This morning we read about the temptations of Jesus during the 40 days of the wilderness following his baptism. I, I think it's important that you and I be reminded at the beginning of each penitential season that Jesus was tempted just as you and I are. And so we hear this lesson read each year at the beginning of Lent. Last week we watched as Jesus took Peter and James and John up on the mountaintop with him and, and we witnessed as they were surrounded by a cloud and Jesus was transfigured. He became a shining figure and Elijah and Moses appeared there on the mountain with them. Jesus' disciples heard the voice of God and just said, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, this occurred near the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. He would soon travel to Jerusalem where he would enter the city on what we call Palm Sunday and be hailed as the new king. But you'll recall that only days later he'd be arrested and tried and crucified on the cross as the same crowd called out for his death. Now, in this morning's gospel reading, we hear Jesus speaking and yet not talking to his disciples or any of his followers. Actually, Jesus hadn't yet called any of his disciples. He didn't have any followers at this time. The, the time is nearly three years earlier than last Sunday's lesson, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's just come from being baptized by John in the Jordan River. Today's lesson comes at a time when Jesus had left the safety of Nazareth, the safety of home and friends and family, and begun a journey that would ultimately end on the cross. All of this began with Jesus' baptism. His baptism came at a time when Jesus had begun to, to become aware of who he was 
and what it was that he was about to do. He was about to enter into his ministry. But first he came to John to be baptized as a symbol for the people. And as Jesus came up out of the water, the voice of God said, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. The words are very similar to the words heard by Peter, James, and John last week as they witnessed the transfiguration. God affirmed his son at the beginning of his ministry here on earth, and he reaffirmed his love for his son as Jesus' earthly ministry was drawing to an end. The scripture tells us that Jesus was coming up out of the water and a dove descended on him in a voice from heaven and said, You're my son, and you I'm well pleased. And then we read in this morning's lesson that the Spirit immediately led him out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. Now in the scriptures, the phrase 40 days is used, I don't know, sometimes like we might say a week or so. It's not an exact time. It was said that Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. We read in 1 Kings that it took Elijah 40 days and 40 nights to travel from Horeb when he was fleeing from the wrath of Jezebel. Well, it wouldn't have taken 40 days to make that trip, but it did take a considerable amount of time, and hence the phrase 40 days. 40 is one of those numbers that's used in the scripture to represent completeness. It was a full portion of time that was needed to complete a holy task. We read that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and that seemed strange to me. The same Spirit that had descended on Jesus at the moment of his baptism to assure Jesus of his Father's love immediately leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. The essence of the temptation story is that Jesus had to decide how he was to do his work. How would he fulfill his mission? What form would his ministry take? Remember, Jesus is all man. Believe it or not, he didn't always have all the answers. There were times when he struggled just like you and I do. We could always go to the Father in those times for answers, and he did. That should be a lesson to you and I. His ministry had just been acknowledged by God in his baptism and the Spirit of God had descended upon him. He knew that there was a ministry in front of him, but how would his task be accomplished? What approach would he take with those who would follow him? On one hand, the Father says, take my love to the people and love them until you die for them. And then there was Satan saying, use your power to force men to submit to your will. Interestingly enough, the goal was the same. Win the hearts of the people. It was the method that was in question. Satan said, these are your subjects. You're God's son. Take control. Whip the people into submission. And the whole world is yours for the taking. God said, son, these are your brothers and sisters. Conquer them by your love. Even if there are those who destroy you. Not a different approach. Several important milestones in the life of Jesus. This morning's lesson is one of those stories. It's one of the greatest. In the temple, when Jesus was 12, there was the realization that God was his father. At the time of his baptism, he became aware that he had his father's approval to go forward with his ministry. And in the wilderness, Jesus would discover the power that God had given him 
over Satan. Jesus was about to begin a ministry that would ultimately change the world for all time. And yet you can't begin something of that nature without a plan, without a method. What was to be Jesus' plan? How would he achieve his goals of taking the good news of God's love to the people? The temptation story is a story of Jesus choosing the method by which he would attempt to win all men to God. It's the story of a man rejecting the way of power and glory and accepting the way of suffering on the cross. I said a moment ago that at this point in time, Jesus had no followers. He had not yet chosen his disciples. So how is it that this account is recorded in three of the four Gospels? The only source of this story is Jesus himself. And so at some point, and at some point in time, Jesus had to have shared this experience that he had in the wilderness with his disciples. And I suspect that he did that because he realized the importance of the event in his life. And he knew that his followers would need to learn how to deal with temptations in their own lives. And they could draw from this experience of dealing with Satan. I don't know how it happened. But I also believe that it was at this time that Jesus became aware that he had been given exceptional powers. Think about that. Could you be tempted to turn stones into bread? Could you be tempted to leap off the temple mount? Of course not. But why? Because those things for you would be impossible. But those could become temptations to Jesus because he was becoming aware that he could, in fact, do those things. He could have stone, turned stones into bread. It wouldn't be that long before he turned water into wine, remember? The scripture says that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. As I mentioned, I don't know for sure how long that temptation took, but we know he was long enough there that he was fully tested. He was hungry. Jesus had gone into the wilderness in an effort to determine how he might best win the hearts of the people. And the gospel lesson tells us that for that full time that Jesus was in the wilderness, that he was tempted by Satan. And then the gospel writers describe three of the temptations for us. But I think we'd be wrong to see that those were a, a three-act play. The only things that happened between he and Jesus. Satan was with Jesus throughout the entire time, tempting him. It may be that this was just the three examples that Jesus later shared with his disciples as he taught them about what temptations can do in our lives. We don't really know. What we have to learn here, though, is that God does not tempt us in order to break us down. We're allowed to be tempted in order that we might grow stronger in our faith and in our trust in God. That's the basic story of Job. Remember, God allowed Job to be tested by Satan, but through that entire experience, God was there. In the end, Job came out better and a stronger man. God doesn't send us into the wilderness to break us. He does so in order that we might grow stronger why do we place steel in the fire? Not to destroy it, but to form it into something useful. We temper it and make it even stronger. You and I can become tempered Christians, made stronger by the hand of God. I remember back listening to a priest friend of mine preaching on this passage several years ago. He did a, he did a wonderful job in comparing the temptations of Jesus with the temptations of Adam and Eve in the garden. And in some respects, they're the same temptations that you and I face in our daily lives. 
They were temptations that address our basic needs. There were temptations that, that fill our physical needs. Adam and Eve saw the fruit and it looked good. There was a temptation to fulfill their desire to be like God. Satan told Adam and Eve that they'd eat the fruit, they'd understand good and evil. And they gave in to that temptation, even though God had warned them of the consequences of failing to obey his commandment. They allowed their egos to rule their hearts and their better judgment. And they paid dearly for that choice that they made. The first temptation of Jesus was to what? Turn stones into bread to fulfill a physical need. The wilderness area of Palestine is not a sandy desert. It's a rough, hard land. It's covered with limestone. Stones that actually look a little bit like small loaves of bread. Although we don't know how long Jesus had been there, we can rightly assume that he was hungry. Remember, he was human. And for whatever reason, we can also assume that he hadn't brought any provisions with him. So here's Jesus. He's alone in the wilderness. He's hungry, just as you and I would be. And Satan comes to him and says, if you're hungry, you can just turn some of these stones into bread. You have the power to do that, you know. What was it Satan was attempting to say to Jesus? Part of it was use your powers to satisfy your own needs. But the message was more than that. Satan was saying, if you want people to follow you, you use your powers to give them physical things, material things. Fill their empty bellies, provide for their physical needs, and they'll follow you anywhere. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament scripture to respond to Satan. They were the words of Moses to the children of Israel in another wilderness. In Deuteronomy, Moses told the people, for 40 years, there's that number again, for 40 years, God has fed you with manna in order to test you and to humble you so that you would come to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus quoted those same words to Satan in the wilderness. That's what our lessons were about on Ash Wednesday. Jesus told the people that where their possessions were, that's where their heart can be found. But you and I will never find life in material things, and Jesus knew that. Remember after Jesus had fed the 5,000, the next day the crowds came back to him again. And he said, why are you here? Now he knew the answer before he asked. The people had come back for another free meal. But Jesus told the people, I've come to bring you something much more precious than food. I've come to offer you the bread of life. Jesus said, if you'll eat of this bread that I have to offer you, you'll live forever. Remember Jesus told the woman at the well that he could give her the water of life and the woman said, give it to me. She didn't really understand. She didn't understand yet what it was that Jesus was offering her. But when she discovered the meaning of his words, she went to tell everyone she could find to come meet this man who had the water of life. In the second temptation, the scripture tells us that the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. To get the entire picture, we need to listen to the rest of the conversation. Satan said, all that you see has been given to me. Satan was saying, I've been given the authority over the earth. You will stop to think about that. We live in the devil's playground. That's why life can be so difficult at times. 
This is the devil's neighborhood that you and I live in. And Satan said to Jesus, I can give this to anyone I please. And I'm prepared to give it all to you if you'll only worship me. Now, I don't know, I don't think there was any way in the world that he expected Jesus to fall down and worship him. Because in my opinion, there was no way that, that Satan truly thought that was going to happen. So what was the temptation really all about? It was about compromise. I don't think the devil for a moment thought that Jesus would fall down and worship him, but I do believe that he thought Jesus might compromise himself a little and ask for Satan's help. Satan told Jesus, I've got the people of the world in my grip. If you set your standards too high, the people won't follow you. But if you just compromise a little bit, what can it hurt? Who would know? This is just between you and me. I can help you. One of the problems I believe that we're facing in today's world is that we or a society is attempting to live in a gray world. Far too many people are afraid to see things in black and white, right or wrong. We're too concerned about being politically correct and not offending anyone, so we water down our beliefs to the point that we no longer know for certain what it is that we profess to believe. And then we look around and ask the question, how do we get in this mess? Again, Jesus quoted Old Testament scripture and said, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus said, God is God, right is wrong, and wrong is wrong. In my ministry, there will be no room for compromise. You ever stop to notice how often Jesus uses scripture to respond to people's questions? Is there a lesson there for you and me? If we don't know God's word, we can't use it at those times of our own temptations. I'm not talking about spouting off verses in chapter to impress your friends with your piety. Nice to, to be able to draw on God's word on those times in our hearts when we feel alone and in need of strength and courage. So that's what Jesus did. The last temptation that we have is an interesting one. We read that the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem to the top of the temple wall. This is where the two great walls uh, met. And ancient records tell us that they were about 450 feet above the Kedron Valley. That's about equal to a 40-story building. It's that number again. Now, this is interesting. Satan had tempted Jesus twice, and twice Jesus had responded with Old Testament Scripture. So what does Satan do? We can see how clever the devil is. Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and quotes Scripture to him. In this morning psalm, we read those words, No evil shall befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up. So that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Is that clever or not? The devil knows the scriptures as well as Jesus does. That means he knows it a whole lot better than you and I do. And that's one of the reasons that Satan can create such pain and hardship in our lives. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our soft spots. He knows where we're vulnerable. And he can make his temptations look so inviting. What was Satan's temptation? What was it that he was suggesting to Jesus? Satan was saying, jump off the walls. Give the people a show. Give them something sensational. 
perform some miracles and just knock their socks off. You know, this is one of the things Jesus did do. He performed many miracles, but in nearly every instance he did them at quiet, out-of-the-way places, and most often afterwards would say, tell no one what's taking place. Jesus performed miracles all right, but not for the sensation that they could provide. Jesus' miracles were done out of love, and Jesus looked into the eyes of Satan and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Satan must have known that today wasn't going to be his day. And the scripture says, when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. In the New Testament, Luke says that it was Satan who's behind human disease and suffering. It's the devil who seduced Judas. Peter says that it's against the power of Satan that we must constantly battle. Matthew said that Satan could bring about man's final destruction. And it was James who reminded us that it was Satan's power that's being broken by the word of Christ. In Mark's gospel, he ends this story by simply saying that the angels waited on Jesus. But it's interesting in Luke's account of the same event he says, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. What does that tell me? God and Satan have something in common. They can both be very persistent. The devil may say, okay, you got me today. But I'm going to simply wait until another opportunity arises. And believe me, those opportunities will arise. We began this Lenten season seeing Jesus as it begins to recognize that his task may lead to his ultimate death. He sees that he has other options. Yet he accepts the task that's been laid out by his father. He accepts it out of love for his father and out of his love for you and me. The good news this morning is that we, like Jesus, are never alone. Even in those moments when we may seem to be lost in our own wildernesses, Surrounded by a world that seems to oppose us on every side, we too have God's angels with us. I believe we shared that a bit with his disciples in order that they might learn from that example. And this morning I hope that we too could learn from his example. You and I will be tempted, but Satan can be overcome. The devil didn't make you do it. He only provided the temptation. You and I are still responsible for our own actions. But God has provided us with his holy word. If we use it, we'll discover that it's a wonderful instruction manual to get us through the temptations of life. Think about that during this one.